Hi, I'm Seth Roseman. I'm Jonathan Fuller. And welcome to No Experts Allowed, where we try to make the Bible less scary, more approachable, and a more consistent means of connecting with the divine. Each week, Seth and I alternate between two roles. The non-expert takes a look at a specific Bible story and prepares for a conversation about it centered around two questions. What's the story and what's the point? Meanwhile, the storyteller joins in the conversation, reacting to the story as they hear it. Because the so-called experts aren't the only ones who can make meaning and sense of the Bible as we read it together. So if you're new to or exploring Christian faith, if you've been to seminary like us, if you want to know more about the Bible but don't want to hear another sermon, or if you're anywhere in between, this podcast is for you. Join us and let's tell a good story today. Seth, how's it going? It's going great. How are you, Jonathan? I'm doing okay. Admittedly, I'm kind of tired, but... I'm energized being here with you, ready to talk about the Bible. It's a good time. And I'm very energized by the prospects of asking you a certain question. I don't know if I like how this is sounding. <laughs> what would you do in this particular situation? Would you want to only be able to name your children Elon Musk? Or have your children only be able to be named by Elon Musk? Okay, I think I would only be able to name my child or children Elon Musk. Even if you had multiple Even children. If I, isn't it, is it George Foreman who did that? All of his kids are George Foreman? <laughs> that sounds like something he would I think do. that's true. But his that, legacy of having his name plastered on tiny grills all over the world isn't enough. I think that's it. But the only reason I don't want Elon Musk naming my child is I've seen the name of his child and I'm not even sure how to pronounce it. Yeah. Okay. So his most recent child's name, I can't even say it. It's X and then the A-E symbol where the A and the E are morphed together, which is apparently pronounced A, like A-I, a letter that's not part of the traditional English alphabet at least. And then... A-12. I, I saw someone post an article about this online and it had the link and someone commented, I'm not sure if the link is part of their name or not. And I was like, that's the scariest part of the name. Right? And like, I'm sure that this child will grow up just fine, I hope. I hope they don't suffer because of this. But I just don't even know where to start pronouncing this name. And yeah, I think I'm totally with you because I don't trust Elon Musk for much, let alone naming children with the evidence of this year being Exhibit A as to why I would not trust him with that task. I don't think Elon Musk is all that great of a name, though, but it's better than an assortment of letters and numbers. <laughs> At least people would always know how to pronounce my child's name. That's fair. Because most people have heard of him. All of those letters exist, at least in the English alphabet. They have a pretty good shot. I wonder if that would help you on job interviews. Your name was Elon Musk. And like, why is Elon Musk applying for this job at Burger King? Right, I was thinking, like, your first job, it's like, wait a minute. What? 
Who wants to be a lifeguard? <laughs> I'm interested to see how that was in any way related to what we're going to talk about next. Well, I think it might be a little bit of a stretch tonight because there are no electric cars or for-profit rockets in the scripture. But we are going to take a look at a very interesting passage from the book of Exodus. So will you read it for us? I'd love to. This is Exodus 11, 1 through 10 from the message. God said to Moses, I'm going to hit Pharaoh in Egypt one final time, and then he'll let you go. When he releases you, that will be the end of Egypt for you. He won't be able to get rid of you fast enough. So here's what you do. Tell the people to ask, each man from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor, for things made of silver and gold. God saw to it that the Egyptians liked the people. Also, Moses was greatly admired by the Egyptians, a respected public figure among both Pharaoh's servants and the people at large. Then Moses confronted Pharaoh, God's message, At midnight I will go through Egypt, and every firstborn child in Egypt will die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, to the firstborn of the slave girl working at her hand mill and from the firstborn of animals. Widespread wailing will erupt all over the country, lament such as has never been and never will be again. But against the Israelites, man, woman, or animal, there won't be so much as a dog's bark, so that you'll know that God makes a clear distinction between Egypt and Israel. Then all these servants of yours will go to their knees, begging me to leave. Leave you and all the people who follow you. And I will most certainly leave. Moses, seething with anger, left Pharaoh. God said to Moses, Pharaoh is not going to listen to a thing you say, so that the signs of my presence and work are going to multiply in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron have performed all these signs in Pharaoh's presence, but God turned Pharaoh more stubborn than ever. Yet again, he refused to release the Israelites from his land. A classic text. But why did you pick the message for it? Well, I think actually the fact that this is a classic text is part of the reason that I wanted to look at something that would express it a little uniquely. Um, The message is, as I think every scholar would like me to offer the disclaimer, it's a paraphrase of the Bible. It's not a translation. Uh, It was primarily orchestrated and written by the late Eugene Peterson. Uh, And his goal in putting together this, to summarize just roughly what I know, is really to focus on the narrative of the text, to present the ideas of the scripture in really approachable, fresh language, uh, to again cultivate a really engaging narrative. And because this story, the story of the Exodus, the story of the ten plagues in Egypt, might be more familiar to those of us who have been around the Bible a little bit more, been around the church a little bit longer, I thought this might help us kind of break out of some of our assumptions and hear the story in a new way as we talk about it here on this episode. But for you, Seth, as you were reading through that, what were some of the things that stood out to you? Okay, one of the things that I I think I knew but I forgot is that even the firstborn of animals will die. I don't know. I just, I guess when I read this, I like read with people in mind. 
right? But then I was like, whoa, the first murder of the animals too? And then I think Eugene Peterson contrasts that with there won't be so much as a dog's bark for the Israelites. I thought that was neat. Do you know anything right. more about that? The animals? Well, this is one of the things that I was thinking about when I was approaching the story, kind of the aftermath of this experience for the Egyptians. What would this be like? And so, of course, there is widespread grief. In fact, the language here of the widespread wailing, the grief that has never been before and will never be again, the language that was actually used here is the same language that's used back in Exodus chapter 3 to talk about the expression of the Israelites as they were crying out under the oppressive hand of the Egyptians. And so this flip-flop is pretty interesting here. But beyond the grief, unimaginable grief, of losing a firstborn child in every family, there's also some pretty serious economic implications for this experience, both in the loss of a presumably healthy, able-bodied child, that is able to either produce or work or support the family in some way and the community, together with the loss of livestock in this way, that's a really significant economic cost. And so this plague, if we want to call it that, or this sign, is going to leave a mark on the Egyptians for a long period of time. And I think the fact that that is carrying over to the animals as well, is indicative of how this is not simply a personal display of God's power in that it only affects individuals. It is something that is intended to affect the entire community. Does that does that resonate with you as you're wondering about how the animals play into all this? Yeah, that was helpful. I wonder if that economic influence or impact is also one of the reasons that that the gold is taken to. Right. That's so curious to me as well. And those are some of the things that don't come to my memory immediately as I'm thinking about this story. I wondered about when you take all the gold and everything that's of value out of that economy too. Like all of a sudden there aren't people to do the work. There's less to trade. There aren't animals. This is is a huge hit economically that I've never really thought about in that way. I I think about it personally, like you were saying. Yeah, and as we should, but... There are multiple layers to the devastation that this event will cause for the Egyptian people and their communities. So a little bit more context here. We can keep exploring this a little bit. The plagues or these signs that God offers through Moses are kind of the culminating experience of Israel's liberation from slavery in Egypt. You know, we have the story of the Exodus where uh, Moses is rescued as a baby, grows up, even though he is an Israelite, in the courts of Pharaoh, kind of in between these two worlds, and is eventually called to deliver all of the people out of slavery. And the way he is supposed to do that is by putting these signs before Pharaoh and before the whole people to show that God is God. The common language that comes up throughout the book, so that all may know that God is God. There's some sort of importance about the knowledge of the divine that resonates and runs throughout this story. So God declares a certain sign is going to happen. Moses and Aaron perform that sign. And more often than not, 
Pharaoh is still resistant to letting them go because God steps in. We heard the language here of God making Pharaoh more stubborn than ever. The language we might be more familiar with is God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And so then the next sign, the next plague is necessary to keep proving what God wants to prove in this situation. And so with this, with this sign in particular, though, there's a unique position that Pharaoh is in because he's the only one standing against God and hmm. Moses hmm. and the people. We heard those few verses about how all the people of the Egyptians were fans of Moses. Yeah. They kind of came over to his side. And so this is kind of this culminating battle between Pharaoh, who in the Egyptian folklore was considered a god himself, and the god of the Israelites. And so there's this, this head-to-head battle, but in the story, and throughout the story, it's God who increases Pharaoh's ability to resist the signs that God is putting forward through Moses and his brother Aaron. And honestly, that is really uncomfortable for me. It's really uncomfortable for me to think about God both putting up the resistance to the acts that God is committing and those acts being devastating and violent, uh, especially this sign. Uh, So have you had any experiences with this story and thinking about the plagues and how you view God as an actor and an agent and all this? Jonathan, I think I'm at a really similar place to you that I, I think this story is so problematic to me that God, God makes these horrible plagues happen with both, both personal and economic consequences that are devastating for people. And that somehow the, what's devastating is somehow liberative and that it's also supposed to reveal who God is. I think these, these texts are really tough as soon as you stop reading them right at the surface. When you read with the Israelites, it's one thing. And then as soon as you stop reading along with them, I think it's, it's so difficult. Right. Well, we've mentioned that in, the, in some previous episodes of the podcast of how, especially as white Americans, it makes more sense for us culturally to identify with the Egyptians in this story. But as soon as you start to do that, it becomes a whole different story. Yeah. And I think some of this has to do with our removal from this context and this story and from these literary structures, right? Like, we, we do not need to pretend uh, that the Exodus is historical based on modern historical standards. And, you know, the idea of this being more so part of Israel's kind of birth narrative as a people group rather than a documented, cited, properly sourced (laughs) rundown of where they came from as we would consider a historical account. It's more so a historical account in terms of their tradition and understanding of where they come from and how they were delivered by their God. There is certainly a part of us that is removed from that setting and more certainly a part of us that is removed from that understanding of how portrayals like this may line up or conflict 
with other portrayals of God that we see throughout the Bible, the portrayal of God that we see through Jesus. And I don't know, my modern sensibilities, though, are just so disrupted whenever I encounter this story because it makes me feel really uncomfortable. Not Again, not only that God is perpetrating these acts of horrific violence, but also that God is perpetuating the need to, at least in the story, continue to commit these acts by hardening Pharaoh's heart, which in the ancient world is talking about the seat of one's will, um, the decision-making center of a person, that God was the one who was responsible for making Pharaoh as stubborn as he was, at least in the story, which necessitated this massacre in order for Israel's freedom. And I really struggle with that. Me too. And I wish that it was resolved somewhere later in Exodus, but it's not for me because when they get to the Red Sea, the Israelites cross safely and then Pharaoh's army chases them through and the waves crash in around them. It's like, it doesn't doesn't get better. It only gets worse. For me at least, I only speak for myself. Well, it's... Is there anything else that stood out from the text itself? I thought it was fascinating that Pharaoh's servants beg Moses and all of the people to leave. That You talked a little bit about how at this point, by the 10th plague, it's everybody against Pharaoh. And I don't know if I ever realized the way that that builds in the story. Like, every... Even the people who work for Pharaoh are on Moses' side. They're like, they're going to say, yeah, let him leave. That's, that's fascinating to me. I think this, that, that moment too, the way this passage even is constructed, together with this part of the narrative in the book of Exodus, you can see how somewhere over time there were pieces pulled from different places and compiled together. So the first part of this makes it sound like this is God giving Moses direction. And then it talks about Moses leaving rage in a rage. Yeah. And then it talks about the people responding. But then a couple chapters later, all of this kind of happens again or actually happens in the narrative. It's kind of this moment that both wraps up the first nine plagues and sets the stage for the tenth plague. Because together with the tenth plague comes the foundation for the moment of Passover uh, and this story that's a little more elaborated and drawn out because of how meaningful that experience is for the Jewish people. So there's a little bit of awkwardness there, but you're absolutely right that there's this moment where it's like not even at that point where the last plague, which was supposed to be the final blow to Pharaoh, it's still the people that send the Israelites away. At least in this in this particular passage that we looked at, but Seth, I think you bring up a really important point. That's something that I hadn't noticed before, kind of digging into this passage a little bit more earlier. Was thinking about a leader who stands alone, even while people who might be part of the dominant group stand against what that leader is doing. And for me, if maybe we could shift to a conversation about what the point of this passage is for our time and our space and our experience, I'm wondering, in a situation 
where people who might affiliate with a dominant group identify as being on the side of the oppressed, does that really matter if the leaders, the power brokers, the decision makers, if they're not on the side of the oppressed and are continuing to have that heavy hand of oppression continue to hold them down, does that distinction matter if the power structures at play are not changing? One of the things that sticks out to me immediately is the kind of the difference in the governing structures of the United States and Egypt, right? In which one is a, is a democracy where people are elected, and the other is a pharaoh who rules by himself and is passed down like via a hereditary line. Where no one's elected, right? Pharaoh, Pharaoh just produces the next Pharaoh who produces the next Pharaoh. Like that does, I think, inherently take some power away from the people who are in the majority. But I think one of the redeeming qualities of our country is that we shape its future and the people who, who have that power. And sometimes they're... There are forces that keep us from shaping it, right? There's gerrymandering and things that keep people from voting. and But in its ideal construction, we can pick our leaders who hopefully represent what we believe to be true. Yeah. Yeah, that distinction is important. Like, the comparison is worth making, but it is certainly not a one-to-one yeah. translation. I think for me, though... The thing that feels really difficult about it is realizing that regardless of the party that's in power, there is an expression of oppression in some form that is so woven into our existence that the incremental changes that may or may not come from election to election, from different city council members or state representatives or governors or presidents or senators or congressional representatives in our context, like they may be able to achieve that. And then there's the question of, is it all so deeply woven into the fabric of our existence that that kind of incremental change, it's not feasible. It's not even responsible in that like, what we need to accomplish to see justice roll down like waters requires us to do more than work towards and hope for incremental change and progress. Hmm. And again, this is a idea and a message that I hope I would say. I think I would be unfaithful if I was not saying something like this amidst any presidency or any administration the members of the community of Christian faith, uh, people who identify as part of the reign and realm of God, have a responsibility to speak truth to power and to hold it accountable. But it is also a position of privilege that we hold to be able to think about and to be comfortable with the idea of doing it incrementally mm-hmm. when the oppression and devastation that are woven into our system are taking away people's homes and shelters, forcing them to go hungry, forcing them to work jobs that 
don't allow them to make a living. Things that are not common in my life experience. And I'm really wrestling with that. So for you, the wheels of democracy just turn too slowly. Is that a fair characterization? I think so. And I think it's also that I don't necessarily trust them to produce... To to move at all. (laughs) Or to move... Well, to move at all, but also to produce an outcome that is inevitably more just and more equitable. I recognize that kind of like my critique of the passage as being uncomfortably violent and putting a lot of on God's hands, I don't have a real tangible solution here. But how do you how do you wrestle with all this yourself? Like how do you do you think that the the wheels of democracy turn too slowly? I definitely think that they do. I guess for me that's the last hope to grab onto. It's at least some something that can be done that it at least seems possible that we can we can pull those strings and maybe get somewhere. And you're right. I think for me I I don't want it to be slow. Let's get let's get there quickly. Let's, but at least we're getting somewhere, which is which is hard to say too i think i want to get there like we want to sprint right we don't want to crawl there but if it's between not getting there at all and crawling i guess it's crawling for me yeah and that makes a lot of sense again the part of this that disturbs my modern sensibilities is the fact that this would be affecting me be affecting my family be affecting I don't have any livestock, but, you know, be affecting my community in ways that I couldn't imagine. And the fact that as disturbing as the sign is, and I can't get past that, the fact that this action is taken indicates, at least on some level, the gravity of the unimaginable pain that the Egyptians had inflicted. And again, I do not seek to justify any of this. But the fact that in Israel's memory, they wrote this story as a fair punishment for what their people endured. Mm-hmm. It indicates something about what they actually endured that needs to be rectified and need to be made right. Whether God actually did these things in this story or whether they were attributed to God part of this story and their collective memory of being liberated in some way, I think it's worth understanding how significant Israel felt God's action needed to be to rectify the wrongs done to their people. Again, I can't justify it. I can't feel comfortable with it. But it is significant. And I'm wondering what those who experience oppression in our communities today, what they want to see happen to rectify the wrongs that are done to them. When you think about it that way, honestly, a few businesses burning down doesn't seem all that bad. I think when you look at it that way, crawling there slowly 
as the wheels of democracy turn, if I can mix metaphors, <laughs> is just not fast enough. That's just not an acceptable speed to move when people are being crushed by racism, by a widening socioeconomic gap, by discrimination based on their sexuality and gender identity. To move there slowly when you're when you're already experiencing those things, it probably feels like you're like it's standing still. Yeah. Where everyone keeps telling you you're moving, but you, it doesn't feel like it. Right. Right. Which is also not helpful when they're like, no, we're moving. We're moving. Look where we're going. And you're like, well, it's not, it's not any better for me. Right? I don't, I truly don't know what else to do now besides pray. <laughs> me neither. <laughs> we feel like we need it. Absolutely. A heavier conversation for sure, but this is what passages like this invite us into, uh, a really real exploration of not only what the text says, but our own reactions and a deep exploration into what we're experiencing in the world around us too. So can I pray for us? Man, I would love that. Let's pray. Just and merciful God. When these stories of your people confront our modern sensibilities, we trust that like Jacob, you wrestle with us. In the midst of our doubt, the divine becomes real. Grant us peace in our unrest. Grant us endurance in the fight for justice that rolls down like waters. Grant us rest in our toil Mindful of the many names by which your children cry out to you from all over the world, I pray in the name of your child, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. To our listeners, we know this may have been a hard conversation, but thank you for joining us. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode. Seth, what story will we look at next week? Next week we're looking at Matthew 6, verses 7 to 15. It's when Jesus instructs his disciples how to pray. But until then, leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that tough text, John. Thanks for walking through it with me.